The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking this evening at Exodus chapter 5. As Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh, the king of the earth of his age. But as you're turning there, I want to begin with another scripture, one that was on my mind as I was sitting in the pew and thinking about the message that I was going to bring. The Lord laid this other scripture on my heart, and it's in 1 Peter 4.18. And it says there, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, there's a lot in that in 1 Peter 4.18. It says in 4.17 that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so he connects with that and quotes an Old Testament verse. But the concept I get out of that is really pretty straightforward. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. That's striking, isn't it? It's hard to be saved. And clearly the saved in 1 Peter 4 does not mean justified. It means the whole plan of salvation, the whole journey that takes you from dead and transgressions and sins through justification into sanctification and then through death crossing the river into the eternal city. It's a hard journey. And in Acts 14.22, the apostles Paul and Barnabas were encouraging the church at, at, at Iconium and Antioch and saying, we must enter the kingdom of heaven through many hardships. Again, entering there must mean heaven, not so much that initial entering that we do by faith in Christ, that we enter the kingdom uh, through repentance and faith in Christ, but rather that there's yet an entering yet to come for us. Uh, I was also researching, I haven't completed my work because I don't have my Greek Testament with me, but I know that, that in Luke 9.31, uh, Jesus meeting with Moses and Elijah, Together, the Mount of Transfiguration, they were talking about the exodus that, that Christ would fulfill in Jerusalem. His exodus. And what was his exodus? A spiritual exodus, a leading out uh, of people from bondage to sin. But I believe the same word is used in 2 Peter 1.15, in which the Apostle Peter says, I will make all the preparations so that after my departure, and the same footnote is connecting, so I think it's the same Greek word, after my exodus, you'll be able to carry on. So that implies that all of us have an exodus to go through, namely our death, our leaving from this world. And the journey that goes on from the moment we come to faith in Christ until we finally depart this world, that's quite a journey, isn't it? And according to 1 Peter 4, it's hard to make that journey. It's not an easy journey. It's a tough road. I know that that flies in the face of some of the simple evangelistic approach that we've seen before, once saved, always saved, pray the prayer, and all that kind of thing. And I'm not denying that there is a simplicity to justification by faith alone. I'm just saying life after that is far from simple. And what's going on these days as Christ is preached not so much as a savior from sin and all of its ramifications, but as a life enhancer, somebody who comes in to make your life better, it can be that you're stunned and shocked by the Christian life that follows after your initial commitment to Christ. What is this? My life isn't enhanced. Have I made a terrible mistake? 
I think about uh, that great Christian allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Christian running out of the city of destruction, and two of his townsmen run after him and confront him, one of them named Obstinate and the other Pliable. And he discusses with both of them what is on his heart, and he's concerned about the city of destruction, concerned about what's in his book as it reads uh, about a day of judgment and of condemnation. He's concerned about the wrath to come, and he's fleeing. And so Obstinate has absolutely no interest. He says, away with your book. He has no interest in the scriptures. There's nothing in there of interest. But Pliable is interested, very enticed. It's, it looks good to Pliable. And so he says, I'm, a, I'm of a mind to go with you for a while and see how it turns out. And so Christian and Pliable walk along until they come to the slough of despond. And they sli slip down into that mucky, miry swamp and all of a sudden, Pliable saying, this journey isn't looking too good for me. He's saying, how now for you, Christian? Is this the city you are speaking of, this city of delights and of eternal bliss? Uh, and with a great effort, he was able to get up out. Pliable was able to get out of that swamp and go back to his home, city of destruction. Actually, the way it's written, it says it was hard by. So he actually had a very short journey to make back to where he had started. He hadn't traveled very far in his journey. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, think about what's going to go on in Exodus chapter 5. What happens is Moses and Aaron show up and say, Deliverance is at hand. God is here to deliver you from bondage. Happy days are here again. You're going to be led into the promised land. God is with you, not against you. Wait till you see what he does. And so they're excited, and so they see the little miracles that, that uh, Moses does, you know, the hand inside, the, you know, that kind of... It's little compared to what's coming. It really is. When you stop and think about the ten plagues and then what he's going to do at the Red Sea, this is nothing. But then he throws the staff down and it turns into a snake and the people are excited. I mean, after 400 plus years of bondage, you'd be excited too. And the time has come for our deliverance. But all of a sudden, instead of getting better, things immediately get much worse. And if you're going to measure it by the standards of if you are the deliverer, things will immediately get better than Moses and Aaron are false prophets. And so I kind of link it to the Christian life. You know, what kind of message are we proclaiming? Are we proclaiming a life of earthly ease? A life of comfort? A life of Christ as life enhancer? And after that, you get heaven to boot on top of a good life? Is that the message that we're proclaiming? Because if it is, it isn't the gospel that I read in the New Testament. And it isn't even what I read in the book of Exodus because things immediately get much worse for the people being delivered. It immediately gets much more difficult. The Christian life calls, therefore, for perseverance, calls for patience. The epistle, I think, that deals with this more than any other is the book of Hebrews. And so I want to read a couple of quotes from this, and you can jot them down before we begin our study in Exodus 5. It says in, Exodus, uh, sorry, in Hebrews 6, verse 12, it says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Faith and patience? I thought faith was all we needed. Well, apparently not. You need faith and patience. Now, I believe that we're justified by faith alone, apart from patience and other things. But let me tell you something. Faith, saving faith, yields to patience. And why? Because the journey is long. And we must finish what we've begun. We want you to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. And so therefore, the result of patience is the opposite of spiritual laziness. It's spiritual di diligence. 
Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2. Staying with your Christian confession, even when it gets difficult. Even when you find yourself in the slough of despond, you're not going to give up. You're not going to become overwhelmed with depression and discouragement. But you're going to keep going in the Christian life. You're not going to get lazy in your church attendance. You're not going to get lazy in your spiritual disciplines. You're going to keep going, and you're going to keep making progress in the Christian life. Or also Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, the author there says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Couldn't be clearer there. You must persevere. You must have patience. You must make it to the end. You must persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Again, perseverance, patience is enjoined upon us. And then uh, finally in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. So these are three evidences from the book of Hebrews of how you must have patience in the Christian life. And why? The assumption is through many hardships we enter the kingdom of heaven. The assumption is it's not going to be an easy journey. The assumption is it is hard for the righteous to be saved. And I mean saved to the uttermost. Saved through a life of, of sanctification, struggling with sin. Saved to the end. And so that's what we're going to see acted out for us in Exodus chapter 5. Now this is the moment that Moses has been preparing for. This is the moment that perhaps in some senses he had dreaded. But I think we read somewhat into Moses' personality here that he's now kind of over his fears and he's excited about what God's going to do. Well, that changes by the end of the chapter. Moses is a weak, frail individual just like you and me. We tend to put these biblical heroes up on a pedestal and forget that they're merely flesh and blood, just as we are. And so Moses struggles with the same problems that we have. And so his confidence is down in, in the bottom by the end of the chapter. And so God has to build him back up again. And how patient is the Lord? How gracious is he in dealing with us? The, the, the strange thing about Moses' depression and discouragement at the end of the chapter is, isn't this exactly what God told him would happen? The people will receive you and Pharaoh will not. And now it's happening just as God said. And Moses is all depressed and discouraged and says, you've misled me and you didn't save the people like you said you were going to. And how patient is God at the beginning of chapter 6 to encourage him and say, everything's on schedule. The timetable's going just as I said it would. Wait till you see what I do to Pharaoh. So he encourages him, but that's what's going on. Let's look at verse, uh, at, at the chapter. I'm going to read through the chapter and then take it section by section. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. 
They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Then the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. I could stop there, but I'm going to read one more verse. I couldn't, I couldn't stop at the end of chapter 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. All right, so we see Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh. Look at verse 1. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. First of all, let's not underestimate the amount of courage it took for Moses and Aaron to do this. They're standing before one of the worst tyrants in history, whose track record and that of his ancestors is well known. Realize this is not the same Pharaoh who had slaughtered the babies around the time of uh, Moses' birth because the Lord said, go back to Egypt, for those who are trying to take your life are dead. So Moses went back to a different Pharaoh, but it's the same regime, a regime which is enslaving the people of Israel. It's a vicious regime, and we're going to see that more and more as Pharaoh's character is unfolded. This is, a, this is a vicious man, and Moses and Aaron know it full well. And so all of that trepidation that Moses had felt at the burning bush has now uh, come to the fore, and yet he overcomes it. You know, courage is not not being afraid. It's doing the right thing even when you are afraid. It's overcoming your fear and doing what God calls you to do, even though you feel those feelings of fear inside. And so Moses and Aaron do a very courageous thing, and this can only be ascribed to the grace of God. You know, you can't do the witnessing that you want to do at your, in your neighborhood or your, your, with your fellow workers or other students, crossing a bridge that causes you to be anxious and afraid. You can't do it on your own. Only as God gives you strength through the Holy Spirit can you be courageous as Moses and Aaron were standing in front of Pharaoh. Now, the question I ask about verse 1 is, did they lie to Pharaoh? I mean, is that really what God was calling them to do, is, is hold a festival to God out in the desert? I thought God's promise was to bring them into the promised land where they would live forever and ever. 
and that would be the land that they would be uh, setting up in. So why didn't he say, let the people go so that uh, we can go live in the promised land and see you later, and maybe we'll have good relationships in a hundred years, but uh, we're leaving. Why, why this kind of partial statement? They are going to hold a festival to the Lord. They are, they are going to offer sacrifice to God in the desert, but that's not the full story, is it? But then again, they weren't sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Question is, why did they give only this partial answer? Well, there's two, or this partial request, two answers. First of all, I think, to uncover the hardness of heart and the viciousness of Pharaoh and his regime. It's a very moderate request, isn't it? And he still won't say yes. He will not let the people go even for this. So in a way, the Lord, not that he needs any protection from this, but is protected from any kind of statement that, uh, you know, it was an immoderate request. Here are the people that are the very foundation of the economic structure, and you're saying let them go entirely so they'll never come back. He wouldn't have said no to that. He's not going to say no to this. He doesn't say no to, he says no to anything. Anything whatsoever that they request, the answer is no. We see that very clearly. But I think even more plain, it goes to the fact of who owns Israel. Whose people are they? Look again at what it says. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go, that they may hold a festival to me. So the issue here has to do with ownership of the people. Later on in the interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to say, the people are mine. And so there's a contest here between the Lord and Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, the people are mine and I can do what I want with them. And the Lord says, let my people go that they may hold a festival to me. Also, right from the start of this encounter, we see the zeroing in on the relationship between the Lord and Israel. It's not ultimately for the promised land that they're being let out. It's not for earthly things. It's so that they will be his people and he will be their God. It's for the relationship between the two, wherever they are. They can worship God in the desert. They can worship him in the promised land. They are his people. So the issue is let my people go so they may be my people. That's the point. And so I know that there are many people, even among the Israelites, who do not have a conception of that. They will never love the Lord. They're not believers. And they will die in the desert because they're unbelievers. The fact of the matter is it's always been about God and his people. Let my people go. I think it's also fascinating that God sends Moses and Aaron to ask this of Pharaoh. Is this not a request? This is what the Lord says, let my people go. This is a strange thing, isn't it, in one sense? But not really, it's very consistent with God. God upholds the authorities he has established. Do you notice that? He upholds, and he upholds right to the end in Egypt. He works with Pharaoh until Pharaoh gives the order until Pharaoh drives the people out. He's not abrogating Pharaoh's authority. He's just making Pharaoh willing to give the order. He's going to compel Pharaoh. But he does not abrogate this authority that he has delegated. This is so significant. This is, this is what the Lord says, please let my people go. We deal so lightly with established authorities, don't we? God does not deal so lightly with them. It says in 1 Peter 2, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king's, uh, king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And then in Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment 
on themselves. And so God, is, God established Pharaoh as authority over Egypt. And he's, in some senses, sending Moses and Aaron to submit to that authority. But ultimately, God rules over Pharaoh. And he will compel him to obey. I think that's very significant. Also, notice the grace and mercy of God in sending preachers of righteousness to warn before judgment comes. You know, the plagues didn't have to happen in one sense, humanly speaking, in one sense. All you have to do is listen to the preachers of righteousness. Just as Noah was a preacher of righteousness before the flood came and there was opportunity to listen and to repent. Some have calculated that less than a third of the space uh, was used for animals. If you only have a certain number of species, there was plenty of room for people on the ark. But only eight were saved on that ark. So when God sends a preacher of righteousness and threatens impending judgment, you should listen. So also it is in the days of Jeremiah when he's uh, warning them of impending judgment at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And so God sends Moses and Aaron to warn Egypt of impending judgment before even any blade of corn or grass or water has been harmed. That was the time to let the people go. And no damage would have been done at all. Now in verse 2, Pharaoh says a key thing. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. This is the key issue, is it not? If you zero in on it, the issue, as I spoke about this morning, is they don't know the Lord. And as a result, Pharaoh, because he doesn't know the Lord, he will not obey. It says in John 17, 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. Pharaoh is the world here. He represents the world. He doesn't know the Lord. And he says so. I don't know the Lord. There's a strong cord of defiance this Jewish God is just another localized tribal deity to him. I don't recognize his authority. I'm sure you have your own little gods, little idols, but our gods are far greater. And why should I obey the God of the Hebrews? And so he has this attitude. There's a strong relationship, therefore, between knowing the Lord and obeying him. In 1 John 2, 3, it says, This is how we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. You see that? You don't know the Lord if you don't live a lifestyle of obedience to his commands. You may say you do, but you don't. The fact of the matter is we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. At the end of the world, when the Lord Jesus, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 and 8, is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, it says, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There's a connection between knowing and obeying. And wrath comes for those who do not know and therefore do not obey. Well, the offering of sacrifice is linked here in verse 3. Then the, uh, they said, the God, of Hebrews is, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So there's divine versus human activity. In verse 1 it says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. But then in verse 3 it says, let us go so that we may offer sacrifices up to God. And so there's the connection between the divine and the human worship. They're going to take a three-day journey, and right from the start, they're going to focus on sacrifice. Well, now it's time for the deliverance to come. Did Pharaoh give the order? Okay, you can go. Go ahead and go and hold your sacrifice. No, not at all. In verse 4 and 5, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them <clears throat> from working. I think it's fascinating as you read between the lines to notice that the work has already stopped. People aren't doing anything. They're waiting for deliverance. 
They're waiting, and so the taskmasters are out there, but nobody showed up to work today. Now, this is long before labor unions and before sick outs and anything like that, and so I'm sure that the taskmasters were shocked, and the word got back up to Pharaoh and said, you're stopping the people from their labor. So the people were waiting for deliverance and expected it to be immediate. And how disappointed were they? How crushed were they when they realized it wouldn't come yet? Reminds me of the Christians of Thessalonica who are waiting for the second coming of Christ to come immediately. And so they quit their jobs and were sitting around idle, doing nothing. And so there's repeated warnings in Thessalonians about idleness. It says, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. All of these things because the Thessalonians had supposed that the coming of the Lord was immediate. Reminds me also of 1843 when a number of Christians sold all their possessions and waited on their roofs for the second coming of Christ. It's one of those odd moments in church history. If you think the second coming of Christ is tomorrow, why would you bother to sell anything? It doesn't make any sense. Just go up and wait. But they sold everything and then they were destitute. They were in big trouble. They'd lost their farms. They'd lost everything. But so it is. They were expecting the coming immediately and so also these Israelites. They were thinking that work was over and the time had come for deliverance. But God's timetable was not yet. There was still more suffering and more hardship. Bricks without straw. Look at verses 6 through 9. That same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Now this is the way it is. When the devil has a hold of a people or a nation, individual, he's not going to let go easily. As a matter of fact, things are going to get much worse. You look at some of the demon possessions and Jesus drives out the demon. Right before the demon goes out, he throws the victim into, a, into an epileptic fit or some kind of a seizure or some kind of problem. In, in Luke 9.42, it says, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And this is the convulsion. This is the evil regime becoming even more wicked and vile, taking it out on the people. And how ironic is it for Pharaoh sitting in his luxurious palace to say the people are lazy? What does he know of hard work? He's had a life of privilege. This is the very thing that Moses turned his back on, a life of pleasure and ease. He didn't do any hard labor, and he says the people are lazy. That's why they are, they are uh, believing. And look what it says at the end of this little section here in verse 9. So that they will pay no attention to empty words, to lies. What is the Pharaoh referring to? He's referring to the promise of God, the promise that they will be led out of Egypt into the promised land. What does he call the promise of God? He calls it empty words. He calls it lies. Is this not the unbeliever when the unbeliever hears the gospel? It's merely words. It's just empty words. It's a lie. There's nothing to it. And so Pharaoh increases judgment in verses 10 through 14. By the way, you're surrounded by people who believe the gospel's empty words. You know that, don't you? It's the end times. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that the last time scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. It's just empty words. Your friends, your co-workers, your unbelievers that are around you, they look on the gospel as vain words, empty words and lies. But it's not. When God speaks a promise, he fulfills it with a mighty hand and with outstretched arm. 
Now in verses 10 through 14, it says, The slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them. That's a light word, by the way. The fact of the matter is they were beating them. It got much, much worse for Israel. Harder work, more labor, more bloody backs, more viciousness, more attacks before it got better. They kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So things are immediately worse, much worse, before the deliverance comes. And so what do they do in verse 15 and 16? They do what you would do. They complain to man. They turn to Pharaoh. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with uh, your own people. They have not yet learned what Moses has learned, at least, and that is when you have a problem, cry out to the Lord. Don't go to man. What can man do? What is Pharaoh going to do but just make it worse and mock? They should have gotten on their faces and cried to the Lord again for deliverance. But instead they go to Pharaoh and they just get mocked. Lazy, that's what you are, lazy, in verse 17. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. Pharaoh is therefore like sin a pitiless, merciless, vicious taskmaster. You cannot appeal for any uh, leniency. It will not get any easier for you, only harder. And so it is with Pharaoh, just as with the devil. The Israelites get no relief from an appeal to him. So what do you do? You're in desperate straits. The Lord's messengers have come and brought you a message of deliverance. And it's going much worse for you, so it's time to shoot the messenger. It's time to attack the Lord's messenger. And say, look, you made this promise and nothing's coming of it. Verse 20 and 21, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So I guess that um, the uh, staff into the serpent and the hand in, in the leper's hand and all that, that didn't last very long, did it? The respect that the people had for Moses and Aaron was gone. All they knew is their lives were vicious and bitter now and Moses and Aaron were to blame. And this will be Moses and Aaron's sternest test up to this point. It's one thing to face Pharaoh and know full well he's going to oppose, but now they're getting shot at from behind by their own people. A vicious attack from the people of God. And so Moses and Aaron return to the Lord and Moses cries to the Lord and says, O oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon us, upon this people? Is this why you've sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. There's a, there's a, a kind of a, an attitude that comes across in the original language. You get it a little bit in the NIV when it says you've not rescued your people at all. This is irreverence. This is, to some degree, unbelief. But yet, at least, they're crying to the Lord, and they're asking God, what are you doing? Now, God could say, now listen, we covered this in the burning bush. You remember, I told you that Pharaoh would not listen and then I would compel him with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We've already been over this. Why is it you're so afraid? Why are you unbelieving? 
In effect, that's what he says in chapter 6. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God's timetable is not our own. We would have had instant success. Instead, God has ordained more trouble for his people. And then why? Because, you know, God has his eyes on his people as well as on the task at hand, namely to bring them out into the promised land. The people are unbelievers. The Jews, I mean, the Israelites. They don't know the Lord any more than Pharaoh does. And so they have to go through hardship. They have to see God do mighty things through many obstacles before they will finally believe before they will see God's power. They have to have their backs up against the Red Sea and see God split the sea. They have to see manna come down and quail too. They have to see Mount Sinai. And they have to see in the end, after 40 years, God bring Israel into the promised land. God has to sanctify his people. And not only that, he has to sanctify Moses and Aaron too. And so they have to go through hardships. They have to go through difficulties. And so do you. The bottom line is Jesus has not come to make our lives here on earth more comfortable. He's come to bring us to heaven. You have an exodus, and God is working an exodus in your life. Just as Peter in 2 Peter 1.15 had an exodus day, so do you. And you're making a journey now, aren't you? And it isn't easy if you're a Christian. It's hard. It's difficult. But God is faithful, and he will not let you escape. No one can snatch you out of his hand. He will bring you to heaven just as surely as he brought Israel into the promised land. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.